There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I've got you coming out of every orifice. (laughs) I'm really not, you're breaking off quite badly. Hello and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have too. We're locked in today with a best-selling novelist, one of the so-called L's who made Stephen Fry's QI quiz, a contributor to Private Eye, and a regular podcaster. Luckily for us, since we have no budget, this amounts to one guest, Andrew Hunter-Murray, who is here to talk about his thriller, The Last Day. Just restrain that urge to smack his face while I ask him about his gilded life. Do you feel lucky? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've been uh, very lucky uh, in all sorts of ways. I feel incredibly lucky, disgustingly lucky. When you look at your trajectory, yeah. private school, Oxford, and then one of the most desir- sought-after desirable jobs in Britain, do you think the country's changed very much? Uh, well, it doesn't sound like it, does it, from that? I mean... Doesn't no, I mean, I, I was exactly the same. <laughs> I mean, the, I, I was very lucky in that I came to, I came to QI through John Sessions, um, and, you know, late, great John Sessions now, sadly, because um, I met him completely by chance when he was coming to speak at Oxford. He was coming to do an event, and a friend of mine was... C- looking after him for the night and said, do you want to come and meet John Sessions? And she knew that I was an improvised comedian and that was how John had made his name. So she said, why don't you come and meet John Sessions? And um, I did. And we had a great time chatting. And then he said, I think you should meet John Lloyd. He kind of clocked that I didn't know what I was going to do after my degree was over. Uh, he could see that I was interested in comedy. And so that's how the entire thing started. I often think of that particular evening as the kind of hinge moment in my life, which... If that hadn't happened, I would have done something completely different now. I would have probably done the law conversion course I was threatening to do uh, for many years. God, how dull. I, I just, I'd read a lot of Rumpole of the Bailey. I was thinking this is this is the thing for me. Um, I wasn't really clear that Rumpole of the Bailey isn't an accurate representation uh, of most modern legal life. 
No, it's not. No, no, but I thought it was. I thought it was all going to be that, you know, plonk from Pomeroy's and she who must be obeyed and all of this. So that would have been, that was my second plan and it didn't come to pass, but it's thanks to John Sessions. It's no wonder, is it, that people who are at Oxford or Cambridge spend all their time sucking up to those guests who are who periodically <laughs> um yeah i guess not it's um i was a member of the union i thought i was going to do union stuff which i absolutely didn't i once i did one debate at the union and i got introduced as the wrong andy murray because there's another andy murray who um is the head of the stop the war coalition or he was <laughs> quite a quite a fire-breathing communist sympathizer and i was introduced because it was the anti-war debate you know under no circumstances would this country fight for queen and country whatever um and the person introducing me stood up and said, oh, well, our next guest is Andy Murray, who, of course, has been spearheading the opposition to the Iraq war. And I had to stand up in the middle of the Oxford Union and kind of and say, I'm sorry, that's not who I am. I'm just a guy, um, which is one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Well, I hope they shot the person who wrote that script. <laughs> yeah. Now, what yeah. do I no doubt? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was nice. That was against, um, or the, one of the guys in the debate was Brian Hoare. Did you ever speak to him, interview him? The guy who camped oh, yeah, outside the guy, Parliament? The guy um, in um, Parliament Square. Yeah, he camped there for years, um, opposed to the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War and any other war. Yeah, you must have interviewed him at some point. Never interviewed him, but I met oh, really? him. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Did you like him? He was pretty eccentric. Um, yeah. well, I never really understood what the sort of founding origin point of his opposition to the war was because his dad had fought in the Second World War and had been involved in the liberation of Bergen-Belsen, which I would have thought, you know, is an example of a just war. It's probably a pretty rare example of one, but um, that didn't seem to have um, informed his thinking decisively, certainly. Yeah. So nowadays you run anyway. the Fish podcast... Yes, no such thing as a fish. Yeah. That's a respectable enough job, isn't it? Uh, for what? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so why do you want to muck around writing thrillers then? Oh, I'd always wanted to write something. I really, it's, I just sort of thought of myself as an author who hadn't happened not to have written a book yet. That kind of assumption that I would get around to it one day. And then I passed 30 and realised I hadn't done it. Um, no, fish has been completely wonderful we're doing one podcast a week for seven years now and it's the guys behind qi you know it's four of us regularly we just talk about interesting things but it's a lovely way of finding out new information every week and, and coming up with inspiration points i think it probably informed the novel john lloyd always re refers to you all as elves yeah we call each other elves yeah we d not in a twee way i don't think <laughs> it's just because it's a there's a handy catch-all term and researchers is a bit boring um yeah we'd say can we get are there any other elves who are free to help me i'm researching field mice whatever um yeah we call each other elves but we don't say we live in a toadstool or anything like that we try to be pragmatic now was a thriller i mean i see you do jane austen inspired improv comedy yeah that's yeah. pretty posh um Bosch. I don't know this term. Bosch. Bosch. Posh. Posh. Oh, posh. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's very posh. Term originally. Um, it's 
Yeah, it is pretty posh thinking about it now. Two of us studied Jane Austen as a particular author at university, actually both at Oxford, if you if you need more sticks to beat us with. Um, why, why do you trade down and become a thriller writer then? <laughs> improv doesn't quite pay the bills in, in the way that you might assume. I know you think of an improv comedian, you think of someone getting out of a Mercedes uh, with the top hat, but actually it's something that is usually done more for the love than the money. Um, yeah. <laughs> when I asked a similar question to Lee Child, oh, yeah. a thriller writer, most successful thriller writer in the world, yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I, way to... I asked him about it, whether he was trading down in order to make money. He said, yes, of course. That was it. He made a calculated decision when he lost his job. Oh, yeah. Wasn't it was a floor manager or something? That's right. He's... Granada. Yeah. And he oh, lost he his job because he was a troublemaker. Trading down. Do you? Are you asking me if I've made a conscious decision to go for mass market appeal? Yes. As opposed to writing the incredibly emotionally fraught, fragile literary works that I've always dreamed of really writing. Yes. Mm, I don't think I am. I don't think I've got that um, literary uh, <laughs> highfalutin sense in me. No, I, I... But at the same time, all authors calculate. No author really goes in thinking, no one is going to like this. Everyone writes with some eye on people enjoying it, even if they're not writing you know, crash bash thrillers or bodice rippers or whatever. So there's an element of that in everyone, but I hope it's not the driving force. I think that's all that can be hoped People assume that Geoffrey Archer, if he put his mind to it, could actually produce literary fiction. But my argument is he couldn't. <laughs> People write as well as they can. Yeah, I... Th could Geoffrey Archer have written The Remains of the Day? I don't know. I mean, he didn't. <laughs> it seems unlikely to me. Um, I'm sure there is a thing, such a thing as people writing not as well as they can. Um, but that's more probably through overwork, fatigue, whatever it is. But you um, decided to do this because you knew it would sell? No, of course not. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't know any publishers, really. I, I, I hoped that one day a publisher would be interested in it. I had the idea and worked on it for two years before approaching any publishers, you know. So... That that's quite a nice thing at the beginning of people's careers. Stephen King worked on Carrie for ages before he threw it away. Actually, his wife had to fish it out of the bin and say, "I think there might be something here." So I've got lots of old manuscripts mouldering away in a drawer somewhere. I have lots of old short stories which have never seen the light of day, and I've got lots of so many notebooks with the beginnings of something in, but I just didn't have the idea to carry it on. That was a that was a huge thing. Yeah, you mentioned notebooks. You write with a pen, don't you? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I write all the ideas. All the ideas and the plotting, the characters, they all start off um, in notebook form. And then when I'm writing the first draft, that's then on a computer. But yeah, I try to stay off screen for a, a little while at least. Why? I think it helps the ideas move better. I think Weirdly, the act of holding a pen near a piece of paper kind of draws ideas along the arm. That's how I kind of describe it. It's, you know there is, and it doesn't. It doesn't happen in the same way if you put your fingers near uh, a keyboard. It, it it pulls ideas out of you that wouldn't have existed otherwise. That's a lovely feeling. Why did you make it an environmental thriller? Um, I. 
Yeah, it gets called... I, I have seen it called environmental thriller, and it is... I mean, it's about the world stopping turning, so half the world is now baking hot and half is freezing. So obviously there are environmental themes to it. Are you some sort of nutty green? I probably am. Yeah, I think I might be. <laughs> I might be. But what does that... I mean, I you know, I own a car, although it's a mini, so does that make me a nutty green? Probably not. But I try to cycle. Um, I think it's... I, I think it doesn't get... I think climate and environmental stories for a long time didn't get the attention they deserved. I think they probably are now. Um, but it's, it's the timescales involved are so huge that it's incredibly hard to focus on them. Um, the news attention that I think they deserve. I think that's fair to say. Did you think about setting it anywhere else? What, than London or Britain? Or... Yeah, Britain. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I know Britain better than any other country. I've never lived outside Britain. It, would, I, it was already my first novel, and I was stopping the entire planet from rotating. I felt like those were two big challenges, and I'd rather just limit the unknowns as much as I could. How's it done? What, in, in, how's it done? Yeah. Um, there is a, there's a, there are real things which exist, and they're, oh, what are they called? Are they called white dwarfs? I think that they're incredibly dense, um, hyper-velocity stars, they get called, which are the same size as Earth, but they're about 200,000 times uh, the mass of Earth. And a f that we've observed a few of these in the heavens, or astronomers have, you know, barreling through, incredibly disruptive if they passed by the Earth. Um, I only found out that they exist because I asked a, an astronomer friend of mine, friend studying for a PhD, and she went and spoke to her colleagues and they came back with this incredible buffet of options of how to stop the planet turning. Uh, and so I picked that one because I, it felt like the least unrealistic. I mean, obviously, the whole thing is, is not going to happen. The Earth's not going to stop turning in 10 years' time, thank goodness. But um, it felt like a way of doing it which had the tang of credibility. And I think that's important when you're writing stuff that's set in our world, if you like. When I get depressed, I always think to myself... The sun is going to rise tomorrow, and your book supposes it doesn't. It doesn't rise, it doesn't set, it stays the same. Exactly, it's hovering in place halfway through an autumn morning. It's depressing. It's a, it's a, it's a, very, it's, it's an unnatural concept. And um, I didn't really explore the, the effect on people's psychologies in the book because there was more pressing geopolitics happening uh, in the plot I wrote. But, yeah. At what point in the process did you decide to get an agent? Oh, man. Um, before before writing it, but after having the idea. That's it. Someone had introduced me That's to... That's pretty uh, serious. Yeah. I took the idea to him. He's uh, uh, P Peter Strauss, um, who's a brilliant literary Very agent. I took the idea... Publishing, isn't he? Yeah. Um, I took the idea to him, and he said, yeah, okay, that could work. Why don't you go away and write it, write the novel, and then come back and um, we'll see if it has worked. So it's quite a nice open-ended way of doing it because I never written a novel before, didn't know anything about it, but I was given the kind of freedom. I didn't have to do it chapter by chapter, get approval on things. Uh, it was much more of a sandpit, which worked for me anyway. How did you do it? So many words per day or what? I try, I mean, I, you, I tried to hit a thousand words a day. Um, for a hundred days and obviously there are mornings where you just sit and stare 
and can't think of anything um and you know you completely fail that's a very common thing but 100 days is not so long so eventually after maybe 120 130 you will have something that looks a bit like a first draft and that's after a lot of obviously all the planning some authors i think maybe lee child can do this they just sit down and start and they don't know how it's going to end which terrifies me so you've worked it out in advance have you i didn't the first time i started writing the first time without having worked it out in advance came a cropper and had to throw it all away and start again so the second time i did work it out and then it worked have you got a lot of um waffle that you've written yeah that never made it yeah there are thirty thousand words of the initial version all of which is not featured in the finished novel that's another third of a book but it will never see the light of day Probably just as, as well eh? yeah oh yeah the book's better off at murder your darlings isn't it yeah there are a lot of darlings along the way which just didn't make it in it's terrible when your editor picks one of the and really the level of not only characters or plot lines but sentences there's this simile is a bit overblown let's try and lose it and you think i've never written anything better than this this is the pinnacle of my writing career so far it has to go <laughs> hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The gossip is that it's got an amazing film advance. Is that right? That is the gossip. And I think these things get talked up a lot. And I know they get talked up a lot. Um, if if these things get made, I mean, you see you see this thing with like the, you know, who was it? Um, Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks said, oh, yes, the Brexit film's going to be made. And it's actually got a, a 10 million pound deal has been signed. I'm pretty sure no money has ever changed hands for that. That does happen in the industry sometimes. But the right, it is being... How much money have you been offered for it? I'm not going to tell you that. Why not? <laughs> because I, <laughs> because I, I have the traditional English fear and horror of talking about finance, I think. And also, it's, it just feels... 
I feel concerned about it, but it's it's less than has been advertised. My friends were all expecting me to buy them a Maserati each, and that unfortunately ha- hasn't happened and can't happen. Well, you can't do it on the back of an environmental novel, can you? <laughs> um, no, I need more Lee Child stuff in there, I think. And who would be your dream casting for Ellen? Oh, um, I did think about this recently. Um, and now I have completely forgotten the name of the actor. She's in Ex Machina. She played Lara Croft. What's her name? Oh, I know the woman you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's her name? What is her name? It's going to absolutely... Alicia Vikander. Yeah. She is... When I see her, I see someone who I think looks quite like Ellen Hopper. I get that vibe. Um, I saw a film with Rebecca Hall in it the other day. I thought she was very good. She'd make a great Ellen Hopper too. The film was terrible, but she was good in it. Do you uh, do you have any role in podcasting? Zero. Oh, are you kidding? As the writer? No way. The writer not only of the of the film, sure, but of the book? No, I think... I think you then become a very a spare part. It's not. This is not being produced yet, by the way. It is, although it is being turned into a script, which they hope uh, will be made into something. Do you get to do that? Uh, what write the script of it? Yeah. I well, I think that was a possibility, but to be honest, there are people who know the art of writing scripts and screenplays and TV scripts um, much better than I do. And also, I think it's a career of such. You have to have such um, resilience against disappointment. I know people who have who spend years and years writing scripts that never get made, and they make a really good living. They, you know, they provide for their family. They have a pension, all of this, but just the scripts they write tend almost never to get made. And I don't think I have the kind of iron constitution that could cope with that. I just don't have it. I need <laughs> at some point to see the things I write become real. Um, have you made a fortune from this book? No. No. I've been living in a, a small two-bedroom flat for the entirety of lockdown. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How's your lockdown been? Uh, pretty miserable, lots of it. Um, hence the small two-bedroom flat, or rather because of the small two-bedroom flat. Yeah, uh, pretty pretty drab, you know. Um, just having lots of the new sensations that we're used to life presenting us with taken away. I'm going for your 200th walk around the same park um, the same way. It's been very depressing, but I, you know, I haven't um, lost any loved ones, so maybe I've had a fabulous lockdown. I don't know. I think the thing about uh, lockdown is that it's um, it's convinced us all that we are social animals. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, I saw a few friends know, yesterday. It's yeah. if you don't have ordinary human contact. Yeah. It's impoverished. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, even the people you're... Some variety in social contact as well, no matter um, if your immediate family are wonderful, for example, uh, which mine are, luckily, but not to see friends, not to see the same person at the coffee shop every morning. Yeah, it does some kind of un- undefinable damage. You know, the original idea of this podcast before lockdown was that it was yeah. called The Lock-In because it was going to take place in pubs. <laughs> and it was going to be the sort of conversation that took place over an extended period of time during a lock-in. Would you have chosen a pub? 
I can I can think of a few I'd like to go to. Yeah. Um, I don't get much. I don't go to the pub enough. I don't know why. Even when I had the chance to go to the pub, I didn't go enough. And then obviously the option was taken away. I would probably think somewhere like the King's Arms in Oxford, or no, not the King's Arms. Maybe the Turf. The Turf is very nice because it's kind of off the street. It's a little bit private. It's a little bit secretive. But these are all pubs from my past. They're not pubs I go to now. I'm looking for a nostalgia pub. Huh? What would you be drinking? Um, I probably have a gin and tonic. Yeah. I don't drink beer, which is a problem. That's very posh. I know. (laughs) Is it? Yeah. The price of... um, Well, I'll have occasional. I've probably had two pints of beer my entire life. Just never, never, never develop the taste for it. You're not really a Scot, are you? No. <laughs> no, my father's from Glasgow, but uh, he came down to London uh, quite early in his life. And so all my family are there now. And, you know, um, there are visits and things, but no. Where are you on Scottish independence? Oh, it doesn't matter where I am on it. Um, but... I I think I think it would be a shame, but that's because it would it would slightly damage my internal sense of identity, because I'm half Scottish and half English, um, and I think that it would be a pity. But um, I don't think anyone's going to ask me in any meaningful way. So, but this political arrangement has been jolly good for jocks on the make like you, hasn't it? <laughs> oh my goodness! I grew up in uh, Wimbledon. Oh, jocks on the make is, uh, I think that's pushing it. <laughs> I, d- I, I, I think it's a shame. I think it would be a, a pity. Yeah. I mean, I've spent, I think, one year of my life now in Edinburgh doing the fringe. And I know that makes me hated by a lot of people who actually live in Edinburgh. Um, but the thought of extra barriers going up anywhere is pretty depressing, which is part of what the last day is about. You know, it's partly about barriers being erected rather than torn down. Um, for whatever reason. Neil Ferguson is a friend, hmm. despite the fact he's a Scot. Okay. He says, when I said to him, you've done terribly well, haven't you? He said, it's not very difficult when you're only up against English public school boys. <laughs> you are. To all intents and purposes, you sound like an English public school. Yeah, yeah. And yet you're not. I don't think anyone wants to be, I don't think anyone wants to be an English public school boy. No one in, no one in, any echelon of society has said, I think of myself as an insider in the last 20 years. It just doesn't happen anymore. You don't get people who are insiders. Or look at the coverage of Prince Philip, you know, all saying, oh, well, he was really a, a real outsider. You're talking about someone who had lots of royal blood in him from all sorts of royal bloodlines. Um, no one likes to think of themselves as a, uh, an English public schoolboy, but I went to a private school and I'm half English, so I think the cap probably fits. The school cap probably fits. What's next? Uh, well, there's another book on the horizon. Um, slowly hoving into view, which is very exciting. Um, oh, I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to mention that. There we go. Uh, it's all right. Yeah. Um, I'll do... Oh, yeah, so I'm, I'm working away on that. And um, uh, there are various other things. The, the podcast, it's amazing how much time the podcast has taken you know the fish podcast we when we started it we didn't think we'd be going seven years we didn't think it would tour the world which we have done you know um 
So, how do you yeah. tour the world with a podcast? You simply put on a live show of it. You'll be doing this in eighteen months, Jeremy. I promise you. Um, we yeah, we have live. Our first live gig was to forty people in a North London pub, um, in the basement. It was really a lovely place. Aces and eights, kind of grotty but great. Um, and then we just kind of have built on that, and we've we've done three tours of the UK, maybe four, and the USA, Europe, Australia. Um, just doing the live version of the normal show. You could do this. You could get some local dignitaries and notables and uh, and squeeze them on. Very bad idea that is. <laughs> Jeremy, I love that you contacted John Lloyd to check which school I'd been to. Oh yes, King's College <laughs> School, Wimbledon. That's right. That's that's diligent research. That's a snake in the grass for you, bloody John Lloyd. <laughs> he wasn't sure. He didn't know where I'd been to school, so he texted me out of the blue and said, "Randy, where did you go to school?" And I said, "Why do you need to know?" He said, "Paxman's just asked me." <laughs> I'm going to let you get on with your day. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jeremy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.